listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Well, everybody has this one person in their family or their circle of friends, and if you have more than one of these people, Lord help you, but you have one of these people that just has a couple good stories, and they tell them over and over and over again. Now, if you just got nudged in the ribs right now, I apologize for calling you out like that, but, but, but we've all got them. We've all got them. There are stories that we just tell, and, and whether it's around the holidays or every day, you get to hear the same story over and over again. We've got some stories that circle around our holiday gatherings. The last Christmas that my grandmother was with us, she made one of her family famous chocolate pies, which I think is instant pudding, but nobody cares to ask. But it's delicious. Everybody loves it. By the time she passed, she was making like a whole casserole dish of pie for the whole family because everybody just wanted it so much. Well, the last time um, that we had Christmas together, she had made one that tasted more like Dawn dish soap than it did chocolate pie. And we don't know why. And nobody said a word. We ate the whole thing. Um, because we love grandma and we just knew that she had cooked everything else. And so we just weren't going to say a word. So we, but it is not uncommon for every single Thanksgiving and Christmas for someone to be on the group text to go, who's bringing the chocolate pie? Who's bringing the Dawn dish? So it's the, it's the same story. And then everybody's like, what are you guys talking about? Somebody, you know, like a kid that wasn't paying attention. So we have to retell the story. We tell the same stories over and over again, especially if you work for Wayne Bushnell, you hear The same stories over and over again. And I don't have to remind anyone that it's Christmas time. I mean, through the next steps. And I mean, if the decorations and the spam emails didn't clue you in, it's Christmas time. If if the cold weather or the switch from pumpkin everything to peppermint everything hasn't let you know, it is Christmas time. Have you tried to park anywhere in Springfield recently? It's Christmas time. And if you've been around church any at all of your life, maybe you just drop in a couple times a year, but you know, we've just got a couple stories. We always tell the same stories. And so at Easter, we've got the stories and Christmas, we've got the stories and we tell them a lot. And so every Christmas, churches all over the country, they get together and they try to figure out how are we going to take the exact same story and how are we going to make people want to hear it? Are we not going to get people to roll their eyes at the same old Mary and Joseph Bethlehem story sort of a thing? How are we going to tell this story? And so I just, I just want to make it clear, kind of show our, our cards here, that it's, it's the same story no matter what we call it. I saw one church is doing manger things this year. <laughs> That's pretty good. Like, I I like that. Manger things. It's the same story. I I, I saw one that's doing a game of heavenly thrones. That's not good. That's bad. (laughs) That's 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 not a great. But, But whatever you end up calling it, it's all the same story. And so this year in our, our sermon planning team that meets about every six months to plan out a lot of, like a semester of, of uh, sermon series, it's uh, most of the guys you see up here preaching and including, um, we include Molly Button, who you've seen on our, um, on our communion meditations often. She helps us with that team as well. But we, we came together and we're like, we're gonna, we're gonna, we need to come up with something. It's going to be the same story. We're not going to try to hide that. But so we came up with, we'll say, like a different way to tell the same story. So if you brought Bibles this morning, you got a device. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter one. You didn't see that coming, did you? Revelation 
chapter 1, not Luke chapter 2, Revelation chapter 1, as we kick off this series, and we're going to answer John's question to the church. John's question to the church this Christmas, today as we sit here, is do you see what I see? Now first, we have to deal with the, with the elephant in the room. Or should we call it the uh, ten-horned, seven-headed beast in the room? Revelation is a weird book. It's, it's a strange place for a Christmas series. Christmas is about the baby in the manger and the silent nights and the candlelight. And Revelation doesn't really give off the Christmas vibe, right? Like Revelation gives off like the, like buy five gallon buckets of food and hide in your basement vibes, right? That's not the holiday vibe we're looking for. Why on earth would we attempt this at Christmas? And the answer is this. John doesn't write Revelation to scare us. John doesn't write Revelation to scare us. Here's why John writes the book of Revelation. John writes Revelation to give us a new picture of Jesus that leads to a new perspective of worship. That's the goal of Revelation. It's not the, it's not the horned beast. It's not the dragon. It's not the lady over the sea. It's not any of that stuff. It's, to, it's a new picture of Jesus to give us a new perspective of worship. But the way that he gives this picture tends to scare us away from it. It's not an easy read, but if we approach it in the right way, we can understand that it's really just the same story. Before we get into our text, I'm going to dip into just a little bit of the nerdy, kind of maybe even Bible college type of stuff. But trust me, it's worth it. It sets up the series. We need to do this before we just jump right into Revelation chapter 1. In biblical literature, it's crucial to remember what scholars call literary context. Literary context. Now, you don't have to remember it that way, but you do have to remember that not every Bible book is written the same. I was, I was scrolling through Instagram this week and everybody started posting their Spotify rap playlist. Okay, not rap playlist, but wrapped. It's, it's at the end of the year, Spotify sends you this thing that tells you all of the, all of the musical styles you listen to, the artists that you listen to. And so as I was scrolling through judging, I mean, learning all of your musical taste and styles, I, I noticed just how many different genres of music that we're all into. Across the board, it was really kind of crazy. Some of y'all told on yourself this week, but I was like, I wouldn't have posted that. But like you, you, you're scrolling through, like looking like there are so many different kinds of music. And some people that I'm really close with, I'm like, oh, I had no idea that you liked that style of music. So we see all different kinds from country to rap to Christian. You, you, if you're like me and your two-year-old can talk to your Google Home, you just have Coco Melon and Disney songs, Right. That's all ours is. I was like, I guess this is my favorite kind of music now for a while. So there are countless music genres, and, and that's really what they are. They're these genres and categories of music we can divide them in, but there are also lots of different literary styles in the Bible. These 66 books are like 66 unique albums trying to tell the same story in a different style, in a different way. So literary genres determine how you read the text that you're reading. So when you open up a a book of poetry, you know how to read it. When you open up a book of prophecy, you know how to read it. And so if you're going through the year of Bible engagement with us, you may have the temptation to just go through it like like you read every other book. You read it just like a fiction or a nonfiction, and you go through the Gospels. And and you you just want to read the Gospels and everything just straight through, and then you get to Revelation, and, and we're supposed to be reading different. So let me just break it down just a little bit. So, uh, the, the, the literary context represented in the New Testament. First, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written as theological biographies. 
theological biographies of the life of Jesus. So the the goal of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is to give us a theological view of of the steps, the footsteps of Jesus throughout his life and the disciples that followed him. And so we see, we see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these theological biographies. We've read biographies before. They tell us about a specific person. Now, when you move from the Gospels into Acts, Acts is a biography, but it's not a biography of one person. It's the biography of, a, of the church. And so uh, it's categorized as a theological history book. And so it is a bio, bio, biology of, bio, oh, biography of the church, but we're looking at the institution of the church. We're looking at, at the organization of the church or what's going on in the church as it continues to grow and as it spreads out of Jerusalem and as persecution comes and we start to walk through, what does that look like? So it's a history book categorized in that way. And then you move from Acts into the letters of the New Testament. And this covers everything from Romans all the way to Jude. And those are categories as letters or epistles or pastoral epistles. These are like the email inbox of the apostles. So letters back and forth to Christians for instruction and inspiration. So we have, we have the history of Jesus. We have the church of Jesus. And then we have the people of Jesus that are in the church and they got questions. And so the apostles and Paul, they're writing letters back and forth. This is how the church is to be set up. This is how the church is to be run. So you have pastoral epistles, you have theological epistles, and all of these make up our New Testament. And then we get to Revelation, which is the most unique book in the New Testament because of its literary style. When we read it like a gospel or a historical like Acts or we read it literal like letters, we often, we often get ourselves into trouble. And so if we just go straight from the book of Acts or we go straight through the letters and right into, right into Revelation, we're looking for things to just make sense all the time, right? We just want everything to connect. It was like he said there was a seven-headed beast. Like there's got to be a seven-headed beast coming at some point. What we have to understand is Revelation is categorized in a different a different category. Revelation is strange because it actually fits into multiple categories of genre. I'll bring it up here on the screen. Revelation fits into letter. There are letters to the seven churches in Asia, but it's not all literal like those letters. It fits into prophecy, and most prominently, it fits into a category, a genre that we're not super familiar with called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of of uh, apocalyptic literature, that, that freaks me out a little bit. When I think of the word apocalypse, it really, it really freaks me out because when, when I think of apocalypse, I think back to zombies and, you know, like I think back to my younger days when like in youth group, I was always scared that like if it got too quiet around my house that like I'd missed the rapture, right? Anybody else? No? You're like the person in front of you is driving crazy. It's like, maybe Jesus came back and there's nobody in front of me. Um, you remember the bumper stickers that said that? Like, in case the rapture, this, this car will be unmanned. Like, I don't know if that's really like, really kind of God to take the church up and just leave like missile cars all through the city, you know, like running into things. But like, like that's, that's what I think of when I think of apocalypse. I, I think about, you know, all of that sort of stuff, everything going. Actually, and this helps us from the very start, from the title of the book. The word revelation comes from the Greek translation of the word apocalypsis. Apocalypsis. That means, literally means to take off, take the cover off, or to reveal. It wasn't until around the 1850s that this word came to mean what we tend to think of when we think about apocalypse. You know, like, like dramatic events ending the whole world and all that sort of stuff. So, so the revelation of Jesus... The apocalypsis of Jesus is John with his limited words, with his limited vocabulary, trying to define these infinite things that he's seen. 
It's blowing his mind too. And so he's just jotting down whatever he can come up with. It's like John's trying to capture a 4K picture of Jesus with a flip phone camera. It's like, he's, it's going to get blurry, right? And we're going to read it and we go, what? Like, wait, it's, he, he saw what? And if you'll notice... That, that Paul, he, all through this book, it's filled with similes and symbols. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul uses the Greek word for like. So to describe something like a simile, like it was like this, or like a, like a teenage girl would just say every other word, like this. Paul is kind of like that. Like that. In Revelation, he uses it more than twice as many times as any other New Testament author. Because he's just grasping at words. He's finding the closest thing in his brain to process what he's seen. So as we approach Revelation chapter 1, remember this. We read it cautiously. We're focused on Jesus. And we're remembering the genre. Remember the literary context. One author summarized reading books like Revelation this way. He said, take it seriously, but not literally. Take it seriously, but not literally. And that's where we have to remember. So here we go. Are we ready? We're ready to get into the text now. Our Christmas series, Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Here we go. John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Dasher, Dancer, Prancer. (laughs) I'm just making sure you guys are still with us. I didn't think I'd make it through those church names, so I thought I'd make a joke there. Um, Whew. Hard part's over. So here we have John. He introduces himself. By this point in church history, John would not need to introduce himself. We know that John is the brother of James. They were known as the Sons of Thunder. So this is half of the dynamic duo, the Sons of Thunder. John was also authored the Gospel of John. First, second, and third John, really creative with his title choices. Um, But John also was at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother Mary. This guy has been around. This guy is around the biblical story. We know who John is, but all of the things and all of the clout that he has, he doesn't mention any of that in his introduction. That's not how he introduces himself. He introduces himself in this way, as a partner in affliction, in the kingdom, and endurance. Now, why would, Paul, why, why would John do that? Why would John introduce himself in this interesting way? By this time, a partner in affliction, by this time, all of the other disciples had been martyred and killed for their faith. All of his ministry friends were gone. He had lost ministry partners, families, friends. He was actually ordered by the Roman emperor Domitian to be boiled in oil at one point. They dropped him in a pot of oil and he just kept on preaching. And a bunch of people got saved and they were like, well, this is not how we expected this to go. Church history tells us after that, he was forced by the same emperor to drink poisons. Like, we'll get rid of him this way. He still continued to live and survive and preach the gospel. And so the only way that they could get rid of him was to ship him off to this island off the coast of Greece called Patmos. Exiled to this Alcatraz-type island because they couldn't kill him. He's a partner in affliction. A partner in God's kingdom. In the first century Rome, there was no separation of church and state or freedom of religion. As I mentioned Domitian earlier, but history tells us that that he ordered his subjects in his kingdom to call him this, Dominus et Deus Noster. Scary, huh? It means 
our Lord and our God. That's how, that's how he asked his subjects to address him. And you can imagine for a church that would exclaim, Jesus is Lord, that was treason to a Roman emperor. And it was punished as so. So John, not loyal to Rome or any other earthly kingdom, but a partner in God's kingdom, this is why he's alone on this island. And then finally, he calls himself a partner in endurance. He had walked with Jesus. He saw Jesus die and rise again. He, he, was one, he was one who called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He endured a life of persecution. He was by this time a really, really old man. But Jesus had one more message for this disciple to send to his church. Verse 12, John turns around to see who it is that's speaking to him. Or as he says, who is blowing like a trumpet at him. It says, look at, look at uh, chapter 1, verse 12, starting, uh, starting in verse, verse 12 through 16. It says, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Just just count the number of likes in here. Dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. I know what you're thinking, but it's not that guy. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow. That doesn't help the metaphor. And his eyes were like fiery flame. His feet were fine as bronze if they'd been fired in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Merry Christmas. (laughs) I wonder if we took blank pieces of paper downstairs to our children's ministry right now and we were like, draw a picture of Jesus, especially this time of year. Would anybody get anywhere close to what we just read in the book of Revelation. Would anybody get anywhere close? I think one of my kids might get close, but you'd have to be really creative with the way you looked at it, turned upside down. I mean, what, what would you draw? If you had to just think of a picture of Jesus, what would you draw? We, we are, over the years, we really struggle with our pictures of Jesus, the view of how we view Jesus. Maybe, maybe it's just how you need Jesus to be at that time. Maybe that's how you are. So whether you're Ricky Bobby sitting at the, at the table, you know, spouting off eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus. Maybe it's the baby Jesus for you. I did a, an internet search this week just to look for some images. And uh, some of you, let me recognize this guy. You guys got this guy hanging up somewhere. This was somewhere in my grandma's house. Um, and I was like, you know, why is he always looking off to the, where's he looking at? Like this, uh, this Jesus, you probably got him somewhere. I did a little more searching. You go way, way back. And it seems that in the middle ages and the Renaissance era, they had a really hard time <laughs> depicting the manhood of Jesus and the baby of Jesus. So they just made a tiny man <laughs> and put him in a giant woman's arms. <laughs> I know, I don't, I found so many of these guys, like, I'm going to, I'm going to shorten this because I've just, I could have done this all day. Or maybe the baby Jesus isn't your Jesus. Maybe you need, maybe a buff Jesus like this guy. Whew. I feel like, I feel, that's like CrossFit. That's what CrossFit does. Get it? Yeah. Sorry. I was, I meant to leave that out. Um, Maybe draw him like this. Maybe you need a Jesus that's like this. I need a strong Jesus. And this is somebody actually attempting the literal translation right here. So we got the sword coming out of his mouth. We got the stars in his hands. We got some kind of Marvel situation going on here. I'm not sure who needs to take care of this. And can I, can I show you my favorite one? This has nothing to do with the sermon, but can I show you my favorite Phil Collins Jesus? That statue on your left is 30 feet tall. Somebody built that as Phil Collins Jesus. So. We struggle with our pictures of Jesus. He either looks like a cute 
harmless baby or a roadhouse bouncer. I don't know where we get to, but imagine seeing what John is seeing. Imagine seeing what John is seeing, trying to write this down. Most of our attempts are very unhelpful, but, but when we remember the symbolism, when we remember the genre, we start to get an idea of what John is describing here. First, Jesus is described as a priestly redeemer. He has this, this robe and this sash on. We already know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus is described as the great high priest. John would have seen priests through his time in Jerusalem. He had a long robe and a sash, but this, this, uh, this sash up around the chest were priestly garments. This is standard. It's the reason Jesus came to earth. To be our high priest, one who could sympathize with us. One who knows our needs and our desires and our temptations. Jesus in a priestly garment, it would bookend the swaddling clothes he was wrapped in as a baby. Jesus, the great high priest, he has this sash up around his chest, not down around his waist like a worker would, but up around his sash in a ceremonial fashion. Jesus, the great confirmed high priest, priestly redeemer. Next, he describes, he describes Jesus as a, as a powerful ruler. The things that he describes next, we see him described with symbols of wisdom and power and rule. Jesus comes to redeem us, yes, but, but he came as our savior. He also comes as our king. The white hair is a symbol of wisdom and purity. White as snow just described how pure he was. You know, we live in an age with, with, when, where distrust is rampant. Distrust of authority, abuses of power are common. We don't trust our politicians to tell us the truth. We don't trust our institutions to look out for us or anything but the bottom line. Even the church has a reputation now of control and abuse. And Jesus is not coming to take over those things. Jesus is not coming to take over a government or an institution or a nonprofit organization. He comes and all that stuff lays on his shoulders. As Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says, a child will be born, a son will be given to us. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called these things. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Tell me a ruler in the history of the world that has had those titles all attached together. The white hair for wisdom and purity. The bronze feet as a sturdy foundation for the truth. The flaming eyes symbolize that he's a perfect judge of good and evil. And a commanding ocean-like voice. You can imagine John on this island of Patmos hearing the waves crash on the beach constantly. But the voice was even louder than that. It's like this overwhelming ocean-like voice. Representing the cutting conviction that his words can bring. And on top of that, his face is shining like the sun at full strength. I don't know if you remember when we did the, the you know, when we had a couple years ago the eclipse. And they were like, don't look at the sun. Like, don't look at the sun. It's like, that's a good like thing we should do every day. Not look at the sun. But John is here staring at the face of the sun. This is not a weak Jesus. This is not a cuddly baby Jesus. It's a strong ruler, mighty and just, fulfilling every duty of government, reconciliation, mercy, and justice that has been twisted and perverted and abused. Jesus Christ, the powerful king. It's common for many to receive Jesus as redeemer, but not as ruler. The baby in a manger born to die for our sins, but it doesn't take much, it doesn't take much reflection into ourselves and our broken nature and our fallen nature. It doesn't take much for a person hanging off a cliff ready to die to receive a handout. 
It doesn't take much for, for someone who, uh, for someone who can fully see the weight of their sin. And the Bible says that sin leads to death and that the wages of that sin are death. And then you're offered the free gift of God. That's the redeemer. We love the redeemer. We're glad the redeemer comes. And at this time we celebrate that. But rarely does someone, that's, that's only half of the picture that Jesus comes, a priestly redeemer who has come to free us from our sin and shame, but a powerful ruler who has come for the throne of your life. Jesus, John gives us a new picture of Jesus, the picture of a priestly redeemer and a powerful king. So what do we do with this picture? What are we going to do with it? Like he's seen it. Now we've got the rest of the book of Revelation. What's the point of all of this? Well, what John does in verse 17 is he falls over dead. Excuse me. He falls over like he's dead. (laughs) Thanks, John. Uh, Like a dead man. Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder. He comforts him. And then he gives him his title. He gives him him this reassurance. He gives him this new perspective of worship. Here's what he says in verse 17. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. These words that Jesus used here are very important. The words that John wrote down are very important. First, he uses the Greek word for first. When he says first and last, the Greek word for first there is protos. It's where we get our word for prototype. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. He's preexistent. Jesus told the Pharisees before Abraham was, I am. Before the church was persecuted, before John was on Patmos, before we sat here, before any of this happened, Jesus was. He was the king. And then the word that John uses for last. Some of your Bibles may say alpha and omega, but the last, the word he uses for last is the Greek word eschatos. Eschatos. Which is where we get our word eschatology, which is another word that we don't use a lot. Eschatology is, is the theology of the things around the end time. Eschatology more represents what we think of when we think of apocalypse. The end of all things. Jesus is the protos and the eschatos. The, the A to Z, the first, the last, preexistent and preeminent, everlasting and never changing. Why does he introduce himself to John this way? I mean, he knew John. John knew him. He could have just showed up as like, you know, flowing hair, regular Jesus guy, right? He could have come in his normal clothes and be like, John, I got some messages for you. I want you to write this stuff down. Would you just do that? Why on earth would he come in so much pomp and circumstance? Why so much power? Why so much fear do we see? Well, biblical scholar Leon Morris says it this way. The Christians... At this time, in the first century, the Christians were a pitiably small group, persecuted by mighty foes. To all outward appearance, their situation was hopeless. So for the persecuted ones, it is important that, first of all, the glory and the majesty of the risen Lord be made clear. When your faith is being tested, when the persecution comes, when the world hates you because you're following Jesus... When the nativity scene is all put away and everyone's not, oh, no longer okay with us singing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Some of you do some weird stuff with Christmas music all through the year. But that's for you and your therapist. But, but when all of that gets put away, when all of the Christmas packages gets thrown into the crawl space or the basement or wherever you put it, we still need a Jesus. We still need a Jesus. We need a Jesus that was there before the cradle and after the cross. We need a Jesus that was there in the blessed starry nights, but also there in my dark night of the soul. 
We need a Jesus who is king when we are faithful subjects. And we need a Jesus who is king when I doubt his authority and his word. Speaking of authority, there's one more thing in verse 18. John, John proclaims that Jesus holds the keys to death in Hades. Jesus says it. I got them right here. Like he's jingling them. He holds the keys to death and Hades. You know the scene in some of the commercials where the dad like tosses the keys to the son? You know, and it's like this rite of passage, like the son who probably hasn't really learned how to drive all that great or really hasn't lived up the expectations. But that's like the moment where the dad and the son connect is like, here, I'm trusting you with my real baby. And so like tosses the keys to the son. And the son's like, really? It's time. It's like transfer of power happening right there. Right. And some of you have had to do this. You had to give up your minivan and let the kid drive it, which is hilarious. I love when I see a high school kid in a minivan. Dad is giving up the keys to the son, giving over the power and the responsibility. In the Old Testament, we know that God held the keys to death and Hades, that God holds all of the cards. God gets to make those calls. We see this in the story of Job. When, when Satan comes around, he's like, yeah, well, he's only following you because he's never been tested. And God says, you can test him, but you can't take his life. God holds those keys. The choice goes through God. We see that he chose, chose to let Moses die and he lets Enoch and Elijah not die and just ascend into heaven. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus is with his disciples at the end and at the Great Commission, he says what? All authority under heaven and on earth has been given to me. Dad tossed me the keys. It's, it's mine now. And, and so he, he has the keys. Now that mean he's like teasing us with it? I got the keys. I got the keys. No, remember, seriously, not literally, okay? So I know I, the metaphor doesn't really help because of the dad sort of thing. But, but, but the symbol of power, the keys are not literal. When Jesus said he was giving Peter the keys to the kingdom, it wasn't a bunch of buildings he could go and unlock. It was the keys to the kingdom of God. It was, it was passageway. It was authority. It was power. He has the keys. The one with the keys has the power. So let's wrap this up. Let's put a big bow on it because it is a Christmas series after all. Yesterday, I was watching the World Cup, and I was watching America, and spoiler alert, the rest of the world is way better at soccer than us. <laughs> we knew that, right? <laughs> That's why we're going to have the Super Bowl in a couple years, and be like, come play that with us, right? But uh, I was watching America, and I was watching, I was watching uh, our team play, and I got so into it, actually, it's like, I watched our game. And I was kind of down because like, oh man, and then another game came on and I was like, well, I could watch this game. And so I'm just like standing in front of the TV for like 12 hours yesterday watching a sport that I don't understand. Like hardly at all. I'm the Ted Lasso, right? I have no idea what's going on. Like I'm like, if that guy is open all by himself on the other end of the field, you should get him the ball. But apparently that's illegal in soccer. Like I watch a lot of regular football, like American football. And if you're behind all the defenders, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> but in soccer, apparently that's a penalty. You can't do that. It's offsides every time. And they call that. And I was I, it seems silly to me, but that's how it goes. Um, but I'm watching this. And one thing that I've found when I'm watching a sport that I don't understand, whether it's, whether it's cricket, um, uh, soccer, pickleball, like whatever. I don't know. If I don't understand it, it just helps to watch the ball, Right? I know that some of you purists for some of these sports would be like, oh, you can't watch the ball. If you watch the ball, you'll miss all the actions. Like, well, if you don't watch the ball, you miss all of the scores too. So like, I'll be catching myself, my eyes wandering over here. I'm watching. I was like, that guy's open. That guy's open. That guy's open. Well, that guy just scored. So you should probably watch the guy with the ball most often. So I just watched the ball. Let's watch the ball. My eyes start to wander and I see a play developing. That's when I get lost and it's pretty easy. But if I just watch the ball, I never miss the goal. 
If I just watch the ball, I won't miss the point of all of it. If you just keep your eye on the ball, John sees Jesus in the very first chapter of Revelation. He sees Jesus with his fiery eyes and his bronze feet and his juggling stars and jingling keys. Like all this crazy stuff is happening. It's impossible for John to miss what he's supposed to focus on. And actually, this would be the most normal thing that John's going to see in the book of Revelation. So he's like, think of the normal thing. Just keep your eye on the ball. But it gives us a clear picture to focus on and remember why John wrote it. John writes Revelation to give us a new picture of Jesus that leads to a new perspective of worship. The new perspective is a constant hope in the midst of all of the wild stuff you're about to see. No matter how bad it gets, just keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the ball. You won't miss the point. You won't miss the goal. No matter how many heads that beast has, John, look at me. Look at these eyes. No matter how many stars are thrown out of the sky, John, look right here. No matter how bad the war gets in Eastern Europe, keep your eyes on Jesus. No matter who has the majority in the House or the Senate, keep your eyes on Jesus. No matter who sits on earthly thrones, keep your eyes on Jesus. No matter who throws you out or cancels you in, whatever, keep your eyes on Jesus. No matter how bad it gets, Keep your focus. And so this Christmas, there are a lot of robes and sashes and white-haired figures that could distract you from the great high priest. There are plenty of twinkling lights and bright-colored presents to distract you from his shining face. There is lots of music and no shortage of hustle and bustle to drown out his ocean-like voice, the priestly redeemer. The ruling king. At Christmas especially, it's easy to keep baby Jesus in the cradle. It's easy to see the redeemer and not the ruler, but the stories of Luke chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 1 are the same stories. It's the same Jesus. The baby that came to bring joy to the world also came to rule it with truth and grace. So my prayer for us, church, is that we would keep our eyes on Jesus. That new picture of Jesus in our heart would lead us to a new perspective in this season and a new posture of worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for John's work. We thank you for his faithful life. We thank you for his life of endurance so that he would get to see this picture. And as he passes it to the churches, as we walk through them in this series... God, would you just show us this picture of Jesus? Would we keep our eyes focused? Would we keep our eyes just laser focused on the goal? Thank you for this new perspective. Would we not let the world and the things that shine and glimmer take the shine and the glimmer off of your face, our priestly redeemer, our powerful ruler. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you grew up singing hymns, you probably know the song, Turn Your Eyes on Jesus. Upon Jesus, I believe it is. We're not going to sing that because I'm not Wayne. <clears throat> but but, but if, you, if you grew up singing that song, you, you may not know how it was written in 1918. Helen Hawthworth Lamille adapted the words from an evangelistic pamphlet that was handed to her from a missionary friend. The track was entitled, Focus. And in it, it included this sentence. It said, So then, turn your eyes on him. 
Look full in his face and you will find that the things of earth will acquire a strange new dimness. Christmas lights. Dragons. Santa Claus. Seven-headed beast. It all grows strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. John, church, just keep your eyes on Jesus. If you'd like to pray or talk about this morning what your next steps towards focusing on Jesus is, I would love to meet with you. When we stand a little bit later and sing together, you can come right out these doors to your right at Decision Point, or you can do this online as well. You can text the number you see on your screen, or you can find it on our website as well. Church, let's worship this priestly king and this powerful ruler. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.